Good morning to all of you, friends. I had placed a cough drop in my mouth just as we began the time of quiet, and I thought, this is how I will time it. Uh, when, it, when, it when it melts, then it's time for me to stand up. But Alice actually nudged me just prior to the melting, so... I had to chew just a little. And Alice, thank you so much for your introduction. I am Steve Presley. I am um, a Bapto-Methodist. We are members, Catherine, my wife, and I, of the Jamestown United Methodist Church just across the way. And we have been members there subsequent to our retirement from the First Baptist Church in Greensboro in 2018. So that was a 25-year ministry, and Catherine and I have been lifelong Baptists. So you might ask, how does a Bapto-come-Methodist find his way into a Quaker meeting house? Humanly speaking, this is the way things happen in this world if you know somebody who knows somebody. That's how that happens. So your elder, Barbara Bell, is a neighbor, as I understand, of some wonderful members of the First Baptist Church in Greensboro, and she mentioned to them that she would like a recommendation of someone who could stand here and who could proclaim for a period of Sundays, especially around the Easter season. So that is what I am doing here, and I feel very privileged to be here. A very privilege to be a part of something that I have never really experienced. I mentioned to our pastor in Jamestown a couple of Sundays ago that we would spend some Sundays with you uh, at Deep River, and he said, you know, I have never even set foot inside a Quaker meeting house. And I suppose I had never done that either prior to the 1st of March when we were able to be here with you for one Sunday. But that was a special time for us. Today is a special time for us. And God willing, we will continue with you throughout the month of April for five consecutive Sundays. Next Sunday, uh, regardless of what happens with the weather, we are planning to be here with you at 6.45 sharp a.m. And we will have a very brief time of uh, worship together whether outside or inside, and then, of course, everyone is invited to a breakfast in the fellowship hall. So we have lots to look forward to, and, of course, the main Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday service at 11 o'clock following on next Sunday. Today we come to a very particular time on the Christian calendar, and that is known as Palm Sunday. And already a central text regarding Palm Sunday has been read to you. And you recall it as we set the scene for that particular occasion so many years ago. Street merchants were undoubtedly hawking their wares. And besieged Jerusalemites moved aside and gave quarter to a deluge of out-of-town visitors. Wizened, distinguished, bearded men made their way down the alleys, frontlets projecting from their headgear, phylacteries attached to their arms and their wrists. Little children were playing endless games of tags as they ran back and forth in and out, 
between the legs of animals and the legs of men. Now up on the Temple Mount, sheep, very frightened sheep, were bleeding pathetically as their owners tried to calm them. And money sellers and changers and changers of, of, uh, of goods were, were set up, setting up their booths and preparing for a day of frenzied trading. And what you had there nearly 2,000 years ago was the equivalent of a marketplace bazaar. If you've ever visited Jerusalem's old city, and I hope you have, if you shopped its many souks, and perhaps you have, you have witnessed something very similar, except back then, in the first century, the world's biggest event. Now, this would be the event that would divide history right down the middle, was getting ready to take place. And from east and across the deep Kidron Valley, suddenly there came a noise. And maybe a hush fell over that scene, over that bazaar. Hosanna, the word means, oh, save us. Hosanna, louder the shouting became. Hosanna, suddenly someone broke from the crowd and cried out, hurry, hurry, the dead razor, he's on the way, he's coming. The crowd turned and strained to catch a glimpse. And many of those who had come down from Galilee for the Passover had heard him teach. They had seen his miracles. They had seen how he could heal. And now they were hearing the preposterous news that he had actually brought a dead man back to life. But what to their wondering eyes should appear was something rather surprising. It was an unpretentious young man riding serenely on the back of a donkey. Palm fronds slashed and whooshed as coats and robes were removed and laid down in an earth-toned mosaic before the donkey and its rider. And there on a day which was reenacted this very morning, it was in modern-day Jerusalem, and which would be celebrated by the church down through the centuries to follow, was an incredible scene. Hosanna, blessed to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the one who sat astride that donkey was like uh, the center of a hurricane. He was calm and he was peaceful. In his eyes was perhaps no doubt a look of sadness. We read about this in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe even the glint of a tear as his mount moved slowly ahead. Well, the strange processional paused at the gate of the outer temple court, and people who were upstairs no doubt gazed studiously downward. Representatives of the religious party known as the Sadducees suddenly voiced their frustration. Young man, don't you hear what they're saying? They're calling you a king. They're calling you the Messiah. Rebuke them. Rebuke your followers. And the young man's reply, I got to tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would rise up and cry out. Now, older saints in the crowd, no doubt, could remember Zechariah's prophecy. Behold, daughter of Zion, your king comes to you, meek and riding on the back of a donkey. Jesus halted the processional. He dismounted, and he walked inside the temple complex, and there he encountered the incredible din of Passover preparation. 
That included pilgrims changing their shekels, paying their temple tax. Pigeons and lambs up for sale, dust and noise and stench. His sensitivity and also his senses offended the young rabbi spotted a length of rope. And seizing it and doubling it, he walked quietly, he walked confidently, and at once two strong carpenter's arms began overturning tables. Coins clattered as peddlers chased after them and cursed. Jesus stood triumphantly like Samson between two white columns of what they call Solomon's porch, and suddenly what must have been his smooth and sweet voice suddenly boomed, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer, and what have you done? You have made it a den of thieves. Common people scratched their beards. They looked at one another. They recalled another prophecy, and this from the Psalms, Zeal for thine house hath consumed me. Can this be the promised Messiah, they wondered. Temple guards were summoned. They came with swords and daggers drawn. Soldiers stationed at street corners had no idea that those palm fronds that were waved before the young rabbi were actually the crowd's invitation for him to become the restorer of Israel. Sadducees were just as deadheaded. They were poorly versed in the Torah, and they wouldn't recall the account of Solomon's coronation when he rode from the Gihon Spring to the temple astride a donkey. But to the clear-eyed, Jesus' entry looked for all the world like a royal processional. To the folks who greeted him and who celebrated him, it seemed a new day. It was a time looked to and a time prayed for. The city was suddenly awash with excitement. The quiet man on the donkey had already raised a dead man in close by Bethany. But even before he raised Lazarus, Jesus was already a popular hero with many of these people. They knew he loved them. They knew he cared for their plight. He had preached up in Galilee, Blessed are the poor in spirit. His Father God knew them, knew their names, counted the very hairs on their heads, concerned himself with their problems. Jesus taught them how to pray and promised to provide for all their needs. This, at last, was their moment. Heretofore, they had been intimidated by Sadducees who had taken their hard-earned shekels for the temple tax. The Pharisees had given them hundreds of unwritten rules to live by. They had no vote. They had no voice. Regular people were so many sheep to be shorn at Passover. And so they were thrilled when Jesus said to their overlords, You hypocrites! You bind heavy burdens on the backs of others, but you wouldn't lift one finger to help them. This at last was the people's moment in history. The dead razor had arrived. They would have their day in court. Their hopes were raised as high as the sky. But alas, many would see those hopes dashed when Jesus would later that same week be tried and then he would be condemned and crucified. 
His closest followers initially took heart when come the first day of a new week, they heard the incredible news of the Lord's resurrection. After all, hadn't he predicted that? But then, as it seemed that nothing else had much changed, and the Romans and the religious authorities remained in the driver's seat, Peter and others drifted away and reverted to their former vocations up in Galilee. But Jesus had told them that he would go up there before them, and there beside the storied lake he interrupted their fishing with a new and greater commission, and it was joined to an enduring promise. Feed my sheep, Jesus said to Peter. Then to all of them he added an ultimate and unforgettable command. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And as they summoned their strength and prepared to obey, and as they watched him depart, surely they held on tightly to his promise, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And regarding that promise, just as he entered Jerusalem two millennia ago, so Jesus will one day re-enter history, he will. Visibly and powerfully we read, he will return. And then the church, the real church, perhaps churches such as this very meeting, lowly and maybe peasant-like in the eyes of the powerful, will stand on the foundation of the gospel of peace and stride with the Lord into the very center of history once more. That's the promise. And how do we know it's going to happen? Well, remember that Jesus told many parables about men in charge who went off to far countries and came back in order to settle accounts. We don't have to read apocalyptic thrillers in order to know that Jesus will return. All we have to do is review the New Testament story by story to be reminded. I once pastored a country church in Upper East Tennessee where a retired high school math teacher was serving as the minister of music. When I arrived there, Miss Kate told me that she always planned three cantatas as a part of her yearly cycle of choir music. The three cantatas were Christmas, Easter, and the Second Coming. Now, at first, I thought that a bit odd, the inclusion of music devoted to the doctrine of the Second Coming. Later, it occurred to me that Kate had settled upon the three main touch points of salvation history as we read in the New Testament. And the first two, we observe, have already been accomplished. The advent, the resurrection. The third and final is yet to come, but it is just as real and certain as the first. That will be a time when every eye shall see him. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
As Pharisees and Sadducees looked down from the temple enclosure on that first Palm Sunday, they first saw Galileans from the north who had been part of crowds throughout the countryside whose family members had been restored to wholeness by Jesus. Then they saw a smaller number of Judeans from the south who had just that week witnessed the miracle of miracles in the little village of Bethany. These had seen a man four days dead come staggering out of a tomb. From north and south and west and east, from Caesarea to the Transjordan, all these had gathered for the Passover. Then this birthday party for ancient Israel suddenly turned into a coronation for an itinerant rabbi. The religious leaders looked at each other and remarked disdainfully, and you have heard it read from the scriptures today, what can we do? The entire world has gone after him. The good news today is that you and I can be a part of that world that has gone after him. He who came to be a man and overcame death, who also cancels out death for the rest of us, is once more on the way, and his church is a part of the continuing procession. The parade which started outside Jerusalem continues to march through history. And if you read about its history, you see that the church itself, again and again, has experienced raising from the dead in a way, its praise, its hopes, its values, its people. And if you have heard the glad Hosanna, if you have lifted up your voice and cried it out yourself, be you a disciple or a bystander, the invitation still stands. You can join that parade. And may it be so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.